Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, started off Monday with the usual uh, links I liked. A couple of things. One is um, uh, a, a mate of mine, Harjun Chang, a really amazing Korean economist based at Cambridge, sent me a picture of that some students had drawn of him as a sweary cat. He was in Chile recently um, talking about industrial policy and um, being very rude about uh, Chile signing up to TTIP, the, um, the free trade agreement. And um, some Chileans did a lovely uh, caricature of him, but also with some amazing swear words. Chileans are, have a fantastic vocabulary of ripe uh, language, and they put quite a lot of it into the caption. So if you speak Spanish, check out uh, Harjun as a sweary cat. The other thing I put up on there was a very useful set, a table of where... Who gets uh, US aid money? Normally you talk hear about that in terms of countries, but this is which institutions get US AID money. US aid is still the biggest um, by far in the world in terms of bilateral aid programs. What um, you know, Trump uh, and co are systematically trying to cut it and so far have not succeeded. But when you look at who gets it, there's one name that jumps out, Chemonics. Chemonics is a management consultant set up in 1975. It receives $1.7 billion of money from the US aid program, which is more than the US gives the World Bank or UNHCR, the refugees. Um, so it's quite extraordinary and it's so unknown. So I think we, it really does bring home the fact that we need to know much more about the management consultants, who they answer to, what they do with the money, whether they're actually any good, I've got some serious reservations about some of these really big beltway bandits, as they're called in America. Um, and I think it's the, the numbers really drive home that point. Tuesday, we had Papi Missouri, who is a, a researcher in the Congo, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, working with the LSE's Center for Public Authority in International Development, which I've written about a fair amount and work for a day a week. Papi has been involved in a really interesting extension of um, keeping financial diaries, which is going back to a small number of families in a particular place regularly over a year to try and understand how they actually manage their, their finances. This is based on a great book called Portfolios of the Poor, which was published about 10 years ago now, which did the same thing and found a kind of hidden ecosystem of financial management amongst families in three countries. So... The, 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 the CPAID, the, the, the program that Papi's involved in, is working with 28 households in Goma, in the eastern Congo, um, as part of a much bigger research program around a large Mercy Corps project on water and sanitation. Um, and what Papi was writing about is just one of the things that struck them uh, in the conversations they've already had, is just how important savings clubs are. These are things called Lingala uh, locally, um, and Papi describes how they protect people from the predatory state. These savings clubs become a source of trust. You know, if you're in a savings club with people, you have to trust them to repay money they borrow or the whole club goes bust. They're a source of money, obviously, that's what they're there for. But they've also become quite an important source of collective self-protection. So when the police try and extort a bribe from someone or arrest someone, these savings clubs actually get organized and go off to the police station and negotiate a deal, get them out of jail and this kind of thing. So it's really interesting how these very spontaneous, nothing to do with the aid business. These are, these are things which have grown up quite spontaneously uh, and they become crucial exercises in collective self-protection in, in, in Goma. So that was really interesting. 
On Wednesday, uh, one of the Oxfam climate change uh, advocacy people, Tim Gore, who's uh, been writing and thinking about climate change for a very long time, um, had a go implicitly at my pessimism. And I love to be uh, 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 criticised for being too pessimistic because it is something I do. And Tim came back and said, you have to be optimistic on climate change um, and on the ability to actually tackle the climate crisis. I mean, why purely personally, it's the only way you can get up in the morning. You know, if you, if you, if you think we're all going to die, you just, you know, you can't motivate yourself. Um, but also because it's almost self-defeating. If you, if you come up with a, a pessimistic narrative about climate change, then lots of other people give up and say, oh, we can't do anything. So it's part of the actual change process is to find reasons to be cheerful, reasons to be um, uh, optimistic, as he says, you know, uh, Dr. King never would never have got very far with a speech that said, I have a nightmare rather than I have a dream. So he points to some reasons to be optimistic. One is the, the, the sort of spread of the critique of conventional economics, the rise of alternative economics, people exploring, you know, Kate Rayworth's donut economics work or the degrowthers or people who are challenging the reification of GDP in many different places, and the, the reification of growth. Um, and he sees that. The second one, he's seeing lifestyle changes are not just confined basically to a few hippies. You know, lots of people are now going vegan. Look at, you know, in, in Britain, there's been a weird phenomenon of vegan sausage rolls, which have transformed the uh, um, finances and the, the prospects of the Greggs chain of, rather, of, of quite down market bakeries. Uh, he, he sent me a photo of a queue outside KFC in Atlanta, I think it was, because KFC have introduced meat-free alternatives to chicken, and there's a queue of people who want to buy this stuff. So, so there's something going on in terms of a more mass change in lifestyles. Um, and then the third one he points out is that you know, there are some, political, uh, some good political initiatives. New Zealand adopting well-being as a, as, a, as a national target, Costa Rica ditto. Um, but the really big prize is the Green New Deal in the States and whether that prospers or, or fails. And it's making a lot of headway in the run-up to the next election uh, in, the, in the Democrat Party. So that's Tim's attempts to, um, to, to put a more optimistic note. Um, perhaps less optimistic but very powerful was the next day's blog by Shaheen Ashraf of Islamic Relief. Uh, she got in touch because she wanted to write about a really interesting angle on, on the climate crisis, which is something that I've been writing about, especially influenced by somebody called Alex Evans, that if climate activism is to really get anywhere, it has to engage with faith, with faith narratives, with, with, with the sort of deep values transmitted uh, through faith organizations and religious organizations. Shaheen kind of illustrates this brilliantly by writing about the threat to the holy pilgrimage of Muslims, the Hajj. Um, uh, some new research from MIT shows that uh, it could become impossible, too hot to Hajj is the way she describes it, rather catchy. Um, it could become impossible when Ramadan falls in the summer months. So Ram Ramadan, when the Hajj takes place, varies across the year. If it falls in the summer months, within a few years, it could become just very, very dangerous to do the kind of uh, pilgrimage, the walking, the exposure to sun, in Mecca because it could just be too hot for people to withstand. Um, and Islamic Relief is saying, yeah, this is a huge issue. 2.5 million people go on the Hajj um, every year. Many more want to. And that this is um, a, a really powerful rallying cry for why 
Muslim, the Muslim community should step up, in her words. And I think that's a really interesting illustration of just how the potential power of faith and religious narratives to influence activism on something like climate change. I have to say the response on Twitter was a bit pathetic. You know, lots of people going, nah, nah, well, you shouldn't fly to hands then. Um, you know, not actually engaging with the, 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 the depth, uh, the, 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 the human meaning of Hajj. For, for devout Muslims, but just kind of scoring points. And I was a bit disappointed by that. Uh, the final post of the week was a friend of mine from Save the Children, Jose Manuel Roche, uh, Venezuelan, who, who did a um, nice uh, review of a new book called How Democracies Die. Well, not that new, but a book called How Democracies Die. Obviously, pretty uppermost in the minds of all Brits right now as we watch the um, extraordinary goings-on in Westminster. Uh, this book is by uh, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Seiblatt, or Seiblatt. Um, and what Jose Manuel was looking at was what does this mean for um, civil society organisations? It's not the principal purpose of the book, but he was looking at the, at the implications for civil society um, and talked about you know, what Levitsky and Seiblatt um, identify as things like the importance of unwritten norms, tolerance, defending rights, defending institutions, minding your language, the kind of broader context for how activists and civil society organisations behave. And I guess the overall lesson for me is it's not just the what, it's not just you know, campaigning for this change or that change, but how you do it. Do you do it in a way that undermines norms, tolerance, rights, institutions? Do you do it in a way that actually strengthens them? And we have to think more widely than just our particular little policy goal if we're going to become part of defending democracies in a time when they seem to be massively under threat. On that happy note, I'm going to stop for the week uh, and I hope you have a great weekend and uh, talk to you soon. Bye.